0: Hey folks, before we kick things off, just wanted to take a moment and talk about SkunkFest. This year we actually have two different cities and three weekends. So, if you go to skunkfestatx.com, you'll be able to check out the lineups, the dates, and locations. First on the list is San Antonio, Texas, August 21st at Fitzgerald's. Then, right after that, August 26th and 27th at Come and Take It Live here in Austin, Texas. And then a second weekend here in Austin at Empire Control Room on September 5th. Like I mentioned, if you'd like some more information on the lineup, locations, go to skunkfestatx.com. On the podcast, we talk with Mr. Stephen Veg. After getting a start in a high school jazz band, he attended the University of Texas where he played in the Jazz Ensemble and Jazz Orchestra. Since then, Stephen's been playing and recording with a number of different people with various bands, including David Glasgow's 11-piece Steely Dan style group, Blue Millennium. Stephen's also played with Delbert McClinton's Muddy Waters harmonica player, Paul Oscar. We had a really cool conversation with Stephen, talked about a number of different things and what he's been doing since uh, things have been locked down. So it was a really great conversation to listen to. As always, Skunk would like to thank his friends at Golden Guitars and Tragen Guitars, Ernie Ball Streams, and Five Iron Awards.
1: timing hello episode 51 of eclectic soundtracks with steven vague did i say your name right yes you oh, did okay uh, i've been known to get names completely wrong right. so uh, and vague just like the word and it actually said, it like on the screen, word so that helps but i did actually know your yeah. name uh-huh. steven you i know <laughs> you as a saxophone player um you you do so, i mean you're a musician an incredible mus- musician you play all the time and and all kinds of different gigs and, and, uh, and stuff like that as a professional musician, but that's not like your day gig, right? You, you have another job. Is that correct? No, no. I've kind of been trying to
2: run away from music my entire life. Oh, uh, because I just never thought I could build a career around it, <clears throat> but, uh, it always keeps calling me back.
1: It's the opposite of me. So, I yeah. was, I can I I've been keep trying to do music and I can't seem to get a career out of it. So congratulations. <laughs> Um, it's,
2: uh, well, I mean, it's, I, I just try to stay involved. Uh, there's, uh, guitar player, Mike Barnes, he's, uh, in the group extreme heat. Uh-huh. And he said something to me years ago that I've always kept it as my credo or my, my mantra, uh, play or die. And you just, you just got to keep playing. You got to keep doing whatever it takes to keep playing. And if you do that, uh, then maybe the universe will help you out and, and, give you those opportunities.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely and that's worked out so far. Yeah. Well, clearly, man. I mean, you're a busy guy. I think I met you at Mesa Recording Studios when, boy, I hope I'm not wrong here. Did you play on the, was it Los Jazz Vatos or no?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: It's been and, a while. And that's when I found out how badass you guys
2: were. Uh, cause that album, I was so proud of that album.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob's great. I just sat there and pushed, bu- you know, space bar or something, but yeah, no, no, Rob's definitely a great, <laughs> great you know, great job with the mixing. <laughs> and it does sound incredible. And I think he had worked with Ernie and so Ernie brought you guys in there. Ernie Darawa, drumming. Um, yes,
2: uh, yes. He, I guess he had worked with, uh, well, he had worked with, uh, Murale, yeah, uh, yeah, uh,
1: uh Coriel yep. and, and, uh, and Ernie. Yeah. 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 And so then you guys came in, and you had done an album several years back, I think, right? And, mm-hmm. and so this was like ten years previous, right? So this was the second album and you guys got back together, and Freddie, the trombone player, was up in Illinois or something, not in Texas, right?
2: Uh, right. He had already moved to Indianapolis, Indianapolis, okay, and was able to come down for a couple of weeks and be a part of the recording, and and he had. Once again, he had written most of the arrangements and uh, done a lot of the production. Uh, he's just, we trusted him to do that. He had a great ear and sense for, for you know, making a good product. Sure. And we had Ernie Darawa to work with, which sure. is an amazing thing in and of itself. Yeah. And Ernie's and guy's just, just cool and
1: chill and, and easy to work with. And- yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So tell uh-huh. me, uh, was, was the, the lineup. So who all played and was the lineup the same, exactly the same as the original, the album 10 years prior.
2: It was, uh, the original album, Russ Scanlon had played some guitar and, uh, I don't guess he was on that second album, no, not intentionally. We weren't intentionally excluding him, but, uh, it's just the way it worked out. And, uh, Oh, I can't remember his name now. Wonderful uh, piano player from uh, San Antonio uh, uh, was featured on the second album. And I don't remember his name. He might have been the, <laughs> the most exciting part of the entire album was his solo on one tune. Yeah. Uh, Mark uh, something. Anyway, but <laughs> yeah, I was, I mean, both albums were incredible. I, uh, Ernie, yeah, you say he's got that great vibe and, just everything was cool because Ernie was a part
1: of it. Yeah, well, and you and, guys just went in there and tracked it live. I mean, you, you went in there and tracked it live in a mm-hmm. day, or maybe a couple of days, and then of course there was you know go back and and kind of punch this and that and, and do some solos or whatever, right? But but the bo- the bulk of it was just yeah. a live in the studio thing. Well, we we did. I think we tracked
2: all of our solos. Yeah, we you know it's just like. We're all too too egotistical to just, you know, take well, whatever yeah, happened. Who in,
1: played trumpet in the first? Drawing a blank on um uh God dang it, man. Jimmy Shortell. Jimmy,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. And I mean Jimmy's ridiculous. I mean, all you guys are ridiculous. But you're the kind of guys I think I don't know if it was Jimmy that Rob was talking about, or it might have been a different sax player or somebody that had played with Morale even. That where he was saying that li- one guy was literally like, Oh, that's a couple of cents off. I'm a little a couple of cents off like
2: oh yeah Jesus, man. yeah uh, uh, Jimmy had worked with Joe Morales uh, on that murale album okay and they had done a, cu- a couple of the tunes they did horn parts for and I'll bet it was during one of those sessions where where Jimmy was talking about it just being a little a couple of cents off yeah
1: which is nuts he's got an amazing it's ear amazing. yeah yeah
2: classically trained uh, uh, trumpet player. Mm-hmm who just has a great sense for playing pop music and playing jazz and just always has something interesting to say on the horn.
1: So what's your background musically? I mean, I trained professionally, went to school or no, Is sax, your first instrument, Tell us, <laughs> give us some background. Uh,
2: sax, first instrument. Yeah. First and only instrument. Okay. Um, like I had said, I, I tried to run away from music the whole time, because uh, even though I'd had a really good experience in high school on the horn and met a couple of really good players there and had a great time, uh, once I once it was time to go to college, I figured, well, i got to do something that's going to earn me some money, so I'll, I'll learn how to be an engineer. That was something my father had done. He was in petroleum engineering, I went into electrical engineering. Um, but I took some music classes my first semester just to convince my parents that I was giving it a try. I wasn't really giving it a try. I was just marking time until I could get full on into this engineering degree. But during that first semester, uh, uh, taking some music classes and getting to play in the jazz ensemble, I started meeting musicians, uh, awesome musicians, the ones affiliated with the college, with UT and those who weren't. And started to build relationships with those people. And as opportunities came out of that, I had less and less time to focus on school. And so was fortunate enough to be able to transfer all of my credits into a business degree, finished in a business degree, which was infinitely easier, and had time to start accepting music work. Uh, just playing with all these people that I had met through UT uh, through the community. There was one group uh, in particular, uh, uh, the Creative Opportunities Orchestra, it was headed up by Tina Marsh, uh, now deceased Tina Marsh, uh, and Alex Koch, who uh, you might know the name. He's a sax player who splits his time between uh, uh, Holland and, and uh, the United States or Amsterdam. <coughs> and uh, he and Tina and Tina's husband, Randy Zimmerman, who's still in the community here, they were kind of running that show, and and I got to play with those guys. And they were all great players and had guests from New York and other places, uh, great, phenomenal musicians who just really enjoyed coming and playing with Tina and Randy and Alex. And so we were able to have these wonderful shows. They'd be down at Laguna Gloria. Uh, right on the water there. We'd give her performance. Tina was wonderful at writing grants. So we got all the money for these shows through grants. Yeah, that was good. Uh, Those shows on Laguna Gloria, though, I remember we'd have lights on our music stands and all the bugs from the the lagoon (laughs) start crawling on your music stand and you couldn't distinguish the bugs from the notes on the page. (laughs)
1: Get some uh, interesting jazz <laughs> choices on those gigs. Yeah, yeah, well, that's kind of a ni- nice. We were excuse, making a lot of a, a nice excuse, right? Every time you play a bad note, you're like, "Ah, it was a bug on my stand, man. Damn it!" Oh yeah, yeah. Set I said an F sharp. <laughs> I thought it was weird, but you know, that's what I played. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you're. You know what this makes me think of, Vic, uh, talking to Stephen here, and it's been a while since we talked to him. But Jeff Lewis, when the way that he oh, yeah. was, we interviewed uh, a trumpet player who's uh, another just phenomenal player, fantastic player. And you guys actually share a recording of mine that you played sax on and he played trumpet and trombone on this Mr. Peanut. I don't know if you remember playing on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we had him on uh, a, a while back on the podcast and he had a kind of a similar story where he was... I can't remember what he was going to school for now, but he had, there was something going on, and, like, he had graduated or he was oh. about to go into some sort of field. He, he
0: was pre-med or pre-med, something, right? Yeah,
1: I think that's what it was. Oh. Yeah, And he was going full-on on that, and then all of a sudden he got an opportunity or an offer to tour with the Jacksons, and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess I'll do this music thing, you know? So...
0: And yeah then for the next yeah.
1: you know 10 years or whatever he was he was torn with big ax and then he opened up a studio out in uh, Los Angeles and has just been a you know oh, fantastic for 40 whatever years but uh, yeah it's it's kind of interesting um, i didn't realize with you i mean i know you're playing all the time and you got all this stuff but for some reason i, I thought we had you know you mentioned a day job or something before so but but music is what yeah, I, so okay
2: well what happened was I, I started i was finishing college in Austin mm-hmm. Uh, This was 86, 87, 88, Uh, you know, in that business school now instead of engineering school. And uh, started playing a lot, started meeting a lot of people. Uh, uh, I met this guy, James Lakey. He was a trombone player. I met him through UT and through that Creative Opportunities group. And got to know him and Chris Marsh, Mm -hmm. who was Eric Johnson's bass player. Uh, He was going to UT at the time. Uh, met him, uh, uh, started hanging out with those guys. We got a group together. It was called Up Against the Wall. And it was like hard bop being played by these young 20-something-year-olds. We had no idea what we were doing, but we wanted to play this music. So I think we played every venue in town one time. We're never invited back anywhere. Uh, We were just too awful. But uh, we were super lucky because there's a great story out of that, too. Um, Brandon Temple, y'all might know oh, yeah. his name. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, sure. So Brandon Temple was still in high school, was finishing up high school. Chris Marsh, uh, James Lakey from Bone Player and I were, were getting this group together. We needed a drummer. Didn't know who to go for. You know, I think we were floundering around for a little while looking for a drummer. And then Chris came to us and said, You gotta come to Reagan High School. Come this afternoon. Come to Reagan High School. You gotta check this out. So we show up, and there's that band director there with this little kid behind the drum kit playing along to Earth Wind and Fire Tracks and playing the shit out of the drums. Just this unassuming, you know, see I guess he was a senior in high school by that time. And we're saying, hey. You, you want to play with us? And he was into it. And, and anybody that heard him play with us after that was more interested in him than in us.
1: <laughs> Man, well, that's amazing. I mean, you were playing with these guys. Did, didn't he play with Eric Johnson, too? It's, I, I, or not?
2: No, I didn't. <clears throat> it's just that that's who Chris is with now.
1: Um, but, Brandon, who did he play with? Oh, Brandon's played with a lot of people. Uh, I thought he played with Eric Johnson at some point, but I know he's played all over town and with a ton of people. Everybody knows the name for sure. Um, but wow. I think he even spent a brief,
2: well, he, he spent a brief period with Janet Jackson. Really? He had started a tour with her. Okay. Wow. I don't know what happened with that, but he didn't complete that. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was amazing. And then several years later, um, he asked Glenn Rexach, oh, yeah. a guitar player here in Austin, and Yogi, bass oh, player, mm-hmm. and I to do a project with him. He called it Atomic Soul. Okay. We started playing uh, The Elephant Room and a couple other venues, I think. And boy, they were all way better than me. I had really not learned anything yet. See, I was just kind of an intuitive player until the mid-90s. And then I figured out. Kind of what I was doing and took it a little further. Well, I mean, it's Um, so
1: awesome, though, what you get thrown in a situation like that and you're going to get better. You're going to get exponentially better fast because you have to, because everyone around you is amazing, you know?
2: Well, Brandon taught me about Pocket. I mean, he had to actually take me
1: aside
2: when we were in the recording studio and kind of straighten me out because I wasn't, the Pocket was not there. Mm -hmm. I was still learning. And he was able to guide me through it. And, you know, I was able to hang on for dear life, but that was about it. Yeah. The thing that forced me into really learning how to play the horn was that, uh, because I knew Brandon and because I knew Chris Marsh, uh, they, they invited me in to play with Mitch Watkins. Mm -hmm. Mitch Watkins had been doing a lot of fusion type stuff and had a great demo of all that material. He had not recorded any of it, you know, for the public yet. But it was all in demo form, and I had gotten a copy of that demo through from Chris. Learned all the tunes, knew all the tunes. So uh, Chris and Brandon approached Mitch and said, "Try this guy out." And I got in the band, and and Mitch years later told me that he just thought I had a really outside approach, a real outside concept. The truth is, I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> so I was just floundering around, and uh, and and it's at that point that I went home and started figuring out this stuff, you know, here's, here's what I'm doing. I need to learn it in 12 keys. I need to see how it applies to a set of chord changes like that.
1: What did you say you started playing sax? Uh, how old were you?
2: No, oh, I was 11, 11 years old. Cause, uh, the band program, okay. you know, six, uh, I guess I was in sixth grade. I was just about to turn 11. And, um, you either choose sports or you choose orchestra or, mm-hmm. or a band. And, and I had been listening to my father's uh, big band recordings from the 30s and 40s and loved that music and had it in my head and, and would hum it to myself all the time. And so I was reproducing this music in my head and, and just through humming. And then when it, the opportunity came up to maybe play a horn, I thought, ah, I'd love to try to do some of this stuff on a horn. And it was either going to be trumpet or saxophone. And I was just about to get into braces. So the choice was made for me. Mm. <laughs> you can't play trumpet with mm. uh, with a set of braces on your teeth. It's just not happening. But uh, uh, started learning how to play along with my albums. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody else is in the band program and they're just learning the assignments that are given. But I had an agenda. You know, I was trying to figure out how this Louis Armstrong solo went and how this Bix Beiderbecke solo went and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and was listening to Spyro Gyra, (laughs) who were kind of just out at that time.
1: So, so yeah, I mean, so you were in the band and learning the standard, you know, band repertoire and like, uh, you know, reading music and that kind of stuff obviously, but you were already kind of into the jazz realm and, and really looking into the guys and, and heavy into that stuff. Okay. And yeah, so. I was
2: always better as an improviser than a reader gotcha, right. because I'd learned so much just through my ears initially. And so I'm not really a very good sight reader at all. I try to interpret what's on the page and, and, uh, adjust it to, to what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. So like, if you're reading an inner saxophone part, you know, you hear a, a, a saxophone section of five saxes. Well, the lead alto is playing a melody but everybody else is playing some wacky line and I can't read those wacky lines cause they don't make sense to me. And so I, I would start to interpret them and change them to, to fit something that I heard. Hmm. So, so I didn't get called for a lot of reading gigs. Let's put it when, that way.
1: Now, when you say now you, you play all these different <laughs> saxophones and how different is that? Like alto, what soprano, tenor, bass, sax, oh, saxophone.
2: It's, it, it's just different here. huh. You know everything with the hands is the same. Are they just down just uh, different but,
1: octaves? Uh, and the, but everything is exactly yeah, the
2: same? yeah. Okay. Not exactly the same. Half of the horns are keyed in B flat, and half of them are keyed in E flat. So so whereas whereas uh, guitars and keyboards they're all in C, they're all mm-hmm. concert pitches. Uh, and some of these horns they're they're keyed differently, and I'm not even sure where all that started. But uh, they just sit in different places, which is good for the saxophones because I can put three fingers down and that's a G, whatever saxophone I'm on. Okay. But that G on a, on a, on a tenor saxophone is going to be an F concert. And that G on an alto saxophone is going to be a B-flat concert.
1: So oh, you're in different flat. places. So, uh, so which saxophone is it actually just standard like concert pitch? Or is there one?
2: Well, they make a uh, – long ago, they made these C-melody saxophones. And those went out of style, I think, in maybe the 30s, 1930s, 1940s. So you're never People playing People stopped a concert, using them after that.
1: Right, when you're playing. Right. So if you're playing a B-flat right. sax, uh, I, to, to this day, we talked about Jeff with this and everything, I, I, never, I never get it right. So when you're playing a B-flat sax, are you reading a B-flat, but that's actually a C?
2: Uh yes, I would play a C. I would have to play a a, a whole step up because my instrument is keyed down. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. But then you. So you said there's the B flat sax, but then there's an E flat sax. So you're. Yeah. Um,
2: so an alto saxophone and a baritone saxophone are in E flat, and the soprano and the tenor are in B flat. This kind of just goes every other sax right. as you go up and down, they go back from B flat so to E flat. There, so back there's and
1: bass, forth. baritone, tenor, alto, soprano? Yeah. And there's,
2: there's contrabass and there's sopranino. There's actually some freak saxophones that are above those that you listed and below.
1: Would that be like the thing that they don't Kenny, get a lot of use? The thing that Kenny G plays? What <laughs> is that little thing that he plays? It's like, a <laughs> well, that was just
2: a regular soprano. Oh, okay. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, He's not a good saxophone player to follow.
1: <laughs> <laughs> who are you, so? Who are your some uh, some of your biggest sax influences?
2: Oh well, it's you know that you always ask that question and it's hard to narrow it down because you go through different periods where you're digging on different people. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think I, when I was learning tenor saxophone, I was digging really hard on Branford Marsalis oh, yeah. and Kirk Whalen. You know, Kirk Whalum is a sax player that I don't hear many people talk about yeah, no. because he never got a lot of huge national fame. Um, although he went through a brief period of playing on, uh, uh some pop albums and getting a lot of exposure that way. Shaka Khan, okay. uh, Whitney Houston, uh, uh, people like that. And, and maybe some of the jazz people didn't take him as, take him as seriously because he was doing these pop albums. Well, it's because he was sounded so great in a pop idiom, but he's got a lot of jazz chops too. And I just loved the way he phrased and the way he sounded. And so, and, and I was moving from alto sax to tenor sax at the time that I was loving Kirk so much and really adopted a lot of his, uh, style. Of course, it's morphed with other people that I like, like, uh, Mike Brecker. You hear a lot of sax people talk about Michael Brecker as being one of the 20th century gods of the horn, you know, at least, at least, you know, after the hard bop of the sixties. But, um, and, and today I would say my favorite sax player is Chris Potter. Um, he started with, uh, Red Rodney playing, the, the bebop music of Charlie Parker mm-hmm. and was a prodigy from a very early age. And is just this phenom. Now he's not just a sax player. He's one of the great world musicians. He's wow.
1: really up there. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I feel like, um, there's a lot of like people, I feel like, you know, if you're not, if you're not a musician, like everybody knows Jimmy Hendrix, everybody knows Eddie van Halen. you know, these guitar player names, right? And if, And if you don't Mm -hmm. know any better, you say like, oh, Kurt Cobain's the best guitar player. And nothing against Kurt Cobain. I mean, it's not like a technical guitar guitar player or Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's just like everybody knows those names. And a sax world, it's like I feel like unless you're sort of in that crowd, you're a sax player, you're a real real jazz type fan, there's a lot less names you're probably going to know. Everyone's going to say, you know, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, right, Um, Mm -hmm. Marcellus. But like… Yeah, so it's interesting. You're like you're naming like, these gurus, and I'm going like, oh, yeah, sure. Right, right. Yeah, I just nerd out on those guys, and,
2: and nobody knows who I'm talking about. Uh, there is one guy that I've been nerding out on for years that everybody else is noticing now, and it's Jacob Collier. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Like I
1: know the name. But, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, he started uh, uh, creating these YouTube videos where it's just him, it's maybe five or six of him singing these this very thickly arranged jazz harmonies. Sure. And maybe he'd be playing bass and or drums along with his vocals, but it's always him. Right. He's a phenomenal bass player, ph- phenomenal piano player. He does it all. Uh, uh, everything that he puts his hands on, he plays incredibly well. And so he finally came up with the and, and started getting an international following. Uh, uh, he did, uh, uh, uh he started, uh, rearranging covers. And one of the covers was, don't you worry about a thing. And, uh, Quincy Jones noticed that, heard that and immediately went nuts over this kid. Cause you know, he's still 16, 17 years old at the time. Wow. And then got Herbie Hancock's attention. And then Herbie Hancock and Quincy Jones were both just going Nuts over this kid and, and effusively, you know, bringing him into their fold and, and, uh, introducing him at festivals. And then the rest of the world started to catch on. Wow. Um, he can't really play with a group. He spent so much time playing by himself that it was awkward for him to start to come into the musical community and record with people or perform with other people. He just wasn't used to it. Um, hmm. Now some of his greatest recording successes are him featuring a different vocalist. Uh, he's uh, it, some of these hip hop and and rap artists had, or, were on his uh, most recent release, hmm. and so it provides a good mix. It's yeah. artists that the public can re- can relate to, but really thick harmony and and complicated song form at the same time that everybody can still appreciate.
1: Yeah, so definitely, I mean very much a studio producer type musician and the could yeah. opposite of a, a way a lot of young guys maybe yourself somewhat included got, you know st- kind of start out playing and and improvising a lot right and then you get into a more structured reading production sort of environment and it's a little intimidating right this guy's sound like that was his world what he started with right and then getting on stage yeah. Yeah, with a group of guys and 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 just sort of <clears> by the seat of your pants was a little was a new thing
2: well, and, and his stage shows are like a freak show because it's him running around between all these different instruments, creating loops and, you know, just doing it, doing it all and having some sequences,
1: I suppose, behind him. He'd have to, yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. but it just looks more like a circus yeah. <laughs> than, a, than a music concert.
1: Wow, man! I, I know that name, and I'm sure it's one of those things. Like you know, there's 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 these prodigies and these different people that get this huge inter, uh, uh, YouTube type success, and someone will send you a link. And you're like, wow, cool, but you don't remember, right? Unless you see it over. And I, I feel right. like that's the kind of guy app definitely been shown, and and it's what yeah, the guy that's just been yeah. like everything. Vic, are you looking? At, I'm afraid to touch anything after what happened. on <laughs> –
0: our last <laughs> podcast where I went. Oh, where I went no, I, I wrote the names down, though. Okay. I wrote the names down. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that same guy, Mark Mike
2: Barnes, that I mentioned yeah. uh, with Extreme Heat, he was the one that turned me on to Jacob Collier. Okay. And nobody had heard about him yet. So said, "You got to, you got to check this guy out." And so
1: I did. Anyway, how long ago was that? Well,
2: that's several years now. Yeah. Maybe five years. So who my my whole sense of time has changed since COVID. Oh, man, I it's, can't I know, right? distinguish
1: because the whole year just kind of went by, <laughs> and it's like, I mean, we all did stuff, but it does, it doesn't feel like it. Almost, it's just weird. It it's definitely yeah. feels like it's you think you think of things that happened a few months ago, and you're like, oh yeah, in twenty, it feels like something that happened in twenty nineteen, right? And it's like, oh no, it's been like yeah. almost two years. Yeah. Um. Well, who are you when I? <laughs> So I say this loosely, who are you playing with now or who were you playing with before we <laughs> entered a fucking it's okay. you know, well, a century pandemic? Yeah,
2: so I had mentioned Extreme Heat a minute ago. Uh, those guys have been around Austin forever. They were Steam Heat originally and then it became Extreme Heat. There's a lot of story and history behind that. Um, and I came in on the tail end and had been able to ride their coattails on their performances here over the last several years. Uh, we, we had a monthly gig at the One to One.
1: Okay, sure, yeah.
2: And boy, so many people love that venue. It's Great just place. such a wonderful yeah. venue to play. And uh, was doing, so was playing with Extreme Heat, uh, playing with uh, Ernie Darawa and several different groups. Uh, uh, Joe, Joe Morales headed up Sax Travaganza, which was four sax players who got together in front of rhythm section. Uh, there at El Mercado for a while, awesome, yeah. um, and the Vatos, and there were a couple of Western Swing gigs that I was playing, a uh, couple of Western Swing bands, and um, Curtis Calderon is a wonderful trumpet player in, in San Antonio. I was playing with his group at Jazz Texas uh, once a month. Just kind of had, kind of had finally honed it into a few things where I was just improvising on these gigs.
1: And these were like... Uh, had uh, just recently... Oh, go ahead. ahead.
2: Oh, well, I had played with a cover band for over 10 years, and that occupied a lot of Saturdays, and so I kind of got out of the loop of playing in some of these uh, jazz groups or some of these groups where you have more of an opportunity to improvise. And then the the period with the, the cover band ended, had an opportunity to take all these other gigs all of a sudden right. and have been really happy since then uh, even though the money is not as good, it's uh, much more musically rewarding sure.
1: yeah, it's a little more challenging you get to mix it up a bit and you're not just like playing the same stock thing year after year, right yeah um yeah I mean
2: the best part about that was that the crowds are always digging it. you know the the crowd hearing the cover band music boy they're into it, and they're dancing and singing along and there's a lot of energy that you get out of that but uh but yeah after a certain number of times it's
1: just tough to keep going (laughs) um so now speaking of some of these places i mean obviously so one to one it's great to know that they um where i think management changed or ownership changed but they're still going to be open and from what i hear greg's still going to be involved everyone i've talked to myself included, everybody loves that place great place And with a history. And and so thank goodness for that. What about El Mercado in in the backstage there? Is that doing okay? Do you, do you know is, uh,
2: I I think they're trying to get that started again. I think coincidentally because I was talking to Ernie recently and I think he was talking about having had a conversation or two with the owner. And that they'd like to start up again.
1: Yeah, man. I hope that's great. I hope so. That's a cool place, man. When they added that whole, mm-hmm. I remember when I first started hearing that because I always used to go to El Mercado, you know, for years, and they had a little stage, a little stage in one of the like one of the rooms, like the back dining room, actually, with the little guys who yeah. play acoustic. And then someone started talking about shows, and I'm like, what? Seriously? And then I had they built that whole big you know, room and patio stay, that whole big thing. And I did, I, so yeah. I've been there a few times and seen a few groups, but, um, um, yeah, I did one of those, one of the Ernie's nights and played with him and will and Chris, and that was a blast, man. That was mm-hmm. is super fun. And I think the Vato's, did you guys do the album release show there even, or?
2: Probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we did. Um, uh, yeah. Ernie had become a fixture there. He sure. was doing every Tuesday night. I always had different artists in would bring in, uh, superstar guitar players who could just keep the audience in their palm of their hand all night, and oh uh, yeah, he had developed a real following on that.
1: Yeah, man, look at and you get to eat Mexican food and drink, you know, yeah. margaritas like that's the best. Like, <laughs> I love that front room, that bar oh, in front, great. all that tile. Great, man. Yeah, oh. I, I love El Mercado. It's a cool place. I'm, I'm glad to hear mm-hmm. that, and I hope. Cause I mean, it's like a lot of these places, like it's been over a year and you're just like, is that even still there? You know what I mean? Like, did they yeah. make it? Are things okay? So it's, it's yeah. great. To hey, hear. do you remember Hovita's oh, across the street? Yeah. But I heard that shut down because of some crazy cocaine shit or something.
2: Yeah. My funny story about that is that, uh, that I, I was scheduled to play there and maybe a, a month away. It was still a month away. And then the news came out about those two guys, you know, and then their uh, their pictures are plastered in the newspaper Mm -hmm. and the place shut down immediately. I think they had a a chain link fence around the whole property within a week. But, you know, we somebody, uh, I I guess one of the band, that band sent out an email uh, or, or no, somebody from the band asked in an email after all this news had come out. Does that mean our gig is canceled? <laughs> yeah. So he was wish- he was a wishful thinker.
1: Yeah. Well, there was a whole Vic. This came up on a prior podcast, I think, and we were talking because I had forgotten all about it. And you, who do we see there? Was it Red Volkart or something? Once mm-hmm. was that
0: you? I think it was.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. I think we saw Red Bull there, and um, yeah. I, ne- I never even knew. And then I and I think feel like we were talking about it on the podcast or something, and. And it was like, oh, that place got busted for. Remember that for a while there was a whole big thing, and I don't know if this was related or not, but Momo's, right, which was kind of a place that was always around, and that got. Oh. There was a whole big drug thing, and several bars got shut down years back. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Momo's, that was uh, Rio Grande in West Uh
0: yeah yeah. Was that the one on top
2: of cat? Yeah,
1: it was on top of cat. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it had been something else before then. But
1: uh, yeah, it's several
2: gigs there too. Man, yeah, I've been gigging in this town forever, but I've always been on the periphery. You know, because I had a day job at the same time, I was kind of a a part time musician, part time day gigger. So never fully into either one.
1: So, I mean, let's see, back to the 90s, so you probably played some of those places that were gone well before I got to Austin, which like, uh, was it called Steamboat and Lunch Bo- Liberty Lunch or something like that? Um, obviously, and yeah. I'm sure, you know. Liberty
2: Lunch. There was this guy, Dan Del Santos, world music uh-huh. musician, had incorporated a lot of uh, African grooves into his music, uh, had amazing musicians. Uh, I was, uh, you know, that was early on, so I wasn't really ready to play in the band, but I had the right connections. So we got to play, got to play at Liberty Lunch. That was, I think before they had the, the audience was originally not covered. It was like the stage was covered and the audience was out in the open. And then eventually they got a cover for the audience and that was a big improvement.
1: So where was that place? Because I never saw that. I've just heard about it.
2: Like Second Street and, and Guadalupe. Okay. Right. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Okay. Vic? Or close to it. Uh, uh, was La Zona Rosa here when you got to it La Zona to
1: Rosa was here. So that's what I was kind of thinking. It, that, it, was, in it was in that neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I, for, yeah. I forget that that's been gone for a while now, huh? Oh, yeah. Because I, I remember yeah. seeing a few different shows at that. But that was a cool place. Mm-hmm. Um, was that partly outside, too? I don't remember. Or maybe there was a patio and then the whole inside... There was a patio, but
2: that was just for, I guess, the smokers because yeah. uh, the, the venue was inside or the stage was inside. Right. Oh, you, we, <laughs> we could spend uh,
1: all night talking about the way Austin used the to be. The way Austin used um, to be. Well, you know, there's a documentary now. I just talked to this guy. Um, it, I've heard a few people talk about seeing him popping up on Facebook about they're making a documentary about the back room. Have you heard about that? Oh, no. So okay. that should, Fantastic. yeah, I think we're going to get him on the podcast at some point. And, uh, but I, that was my introduction was like, when I started playing around 2000, I started playing here in two or in Austin in 2000, late four Oh five. And then when I really started playing a little more prominent venues was like 2006 and like back. So I played a lot of backroom shows the last year. Mm-hmm. They were there. Um, yeah. Um, but I, I kind of missed that. I think there was this nostalgia that had just kind of died away, maybe in the late nineties, early two thousands. Those, some of the venues yeah. we were talking, cause like, was it steamboat? Yeah. Was that another one? Right. That was
2: early on. That was one of the Sixth street one. Sixth street was like the only area in town. that was that, that was the entertainment district. Right. That was all there was. And steamboat. Yeah. was one of four or five, six venues. Um, Toulouse was another one. Um, And I I would hang out down there just because I was uh, friends with Chris Marsh. Again, this was the late 80s. And uh, he was playing with a funk band called The Business. Okay. And uh, headed up by Derek Edmondson, who is now a very successful sax player out in the L.A. area. Um, But uh, uh, I just wanted to hear that band. It was so funky. And the musicians were so good. Derek would always have just the most stellar rhythm section with him. And I just wanted to hear that group. And then you got to hang out with the other bands because you're hanging out on the street, and your breaks. It's all the same bands every week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's all the people that complain now that they don't have any work, right. they're all working you know, yeah, six, seven they don't, they don't nights a, a week. Right day, there.
1: though, man. You know, and it's kind of like, there's mm-hmm. still some of that. And now there's like kind of a big, uh, a different scene. It's not the blues type thing. Or uh, there's more. There's a lot going on East Six, right? There's a lot going on over there. Yeah. Uh, There's you know scattered venues here and there, obviously. There's um, but but in terms of that original Sixth Street area, now it seems very much like you know you've got friends, you've got a few places. I remember there used to be Nuno's, that's gone. Bates Motel, Three Eleven. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Um, But all those kind Mm -hmm. of places where you would hear those kind of blues bands, mostly gone, except for friends that I can think of, right? And and now it's just like. I don't know what it is, dance clubs and college bars and, and loitering. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a, yeah. a horrible place to be, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we just lost uh, Paul Osher. Uh, I don't know if you saw that on the social media. Yeah, yeah. He was he was playing with Muddy Waters for a long time, Man. was a harmonica player for Muddy Waters. And we had him here in Austin. He was playing a lot of gigs at Antones yeah. and, and touring a little bit he started to get much older. Um
1: And I guess it was COVID. I'm pretty sure it was COVID. I, you might, so. I feel like I heard that. You're right. Yeah, man. Um
2: mm-hmm. But I got to play with him. Boy, that was amazing. It was amazing getting to play with that guy. Because he always had wonderful rhythm section players. And uh it was... I, I'm not sure why he had me in there. He was just interested in having a horn section for a while. Because Tommy Robinson is his uh, sax player. Okay, And... He brought me and Tommy in on several gigs, and then uh, Paul Klemper joined us a couple of times too. He just uh, uh, Paul Osher was just into having that big horn section on the stage. I, I
1: love that so much, man. I love that. Uh, there's all these different sort of genres of you know. There's the blues, right, which is this sort of foundation for so many things. It's a very kind of generic term, but an important term. And everyone needs to know mm. the, the you know the blues in terms of the the f- formula and the, the importance of it in that aspect. But there's all these the Delta blues and the Texas blues and the New Orleans, but Chicago blues is what I always just I just love that blues brothers horn section man like that and that that R and B and that soul and that Motown type music is just like yeah. yeah. I, and I, it doesn't seem like a lot of times the horns aren't doing much, right? But what they're doing is so integral and so important. Just those little stabs and those little moments. It just makes a song, you know, it just makes it.
2: Yeah. And, and that's where it becomes important that the horn players all phrase together and not all the horn sections phrase real well together. (laughs) And that's always a drag because if you can just sound like one unit, it's so much more well, intense, so much more dramatic.
1: And when, when you say that, do you mean just the kind of the, the, the vibe in the pocket that everyone has together?
0: Or what do you uh, mean exactly?
2: Well, the length of notes, sure. okay. uh, whether you attack a note or slur into that note, how short or long it is, all that kind yeah. of stuff, um, where it sits in the pocket too. But to a large degree, it's, it's just the articulation.
1: So I would think that a part of that, regardless of how good the horn player would be, I mean, obviously when you're more familiar with certain genres and the way that the music is approached, you're going to be a little more adept for that than, you know, maybe a bebop porn player who comes into a Motown band or whatever. Right. But like, I would yeah. think that anything like that though, if you're, if you're a section and you rehearse a bunch or you, the more you play two together, you're gonna, you're gonna get that vibe of like whatever the band leader, oh, wants, yeah. how everybody works together, what feels right. You know, but that's the kind of thing you're, you're right. It's like, cause you could make a chart, you know, And even if it was a chart that was pretty specific and you get a group of horn players and no one's ever played together on stage and it's like, look, here it is. Just read it. But there's that's those nuances that you're talking about. That's those, those things that make it. And it's so interesting, right? Because I feel like those are the intangibles or like you're not, it's not maybe a big deal, but it is a big deal, right? Maybe subconsciously like that is affecting a listener. It's just the tightness the app, the you know, the precision, of the yeah, music. yeah. And
2: I think a lot of people hear all of that stuff and maybe just can't discuss right. it, but they're hearing it and they know whether it's legit or yeah. not. Yeah, there's a guy, uh, uh, I guess he's San Antonio based, Carlos Sosa, he heads up the Groove Line Horns and they played with some pretty heavy acts, I mean, like A list acts, and um, he he's got that kind of thing going on, you know, they're very Disciplined about phrasing and, and sounding like a unit. It's very exciting.
1: Do you, uh, and usually you're in a project where, with someone that's kind of, a, well, you've been in somewhere it's more of a band and a, a kind of an open to everybody, and some that's just a very specific band leader type situation, right? Do you prefer one way or another with that? You,
2: you mean where the, you have a uh, uh, members that rotate in and
1: out more of like, uh, you have kind of like a, a group of people playing together that are sort of like making the decisions together and and allowed the freedom to kind of express their individuality as opposed to like, if you're playing in a project like that, where there's a band leader, like a James Brown and that's like, what's it very particular, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, the, the more free situations are always more rewarding because usually you have a group of guys that can do that and still make it sound like music. Uh, It's not going to crater. It's not going to fall apart. Um, I mentioned earlier these driveway shows. Uh, We've done, I guess we've done 14 of them now. Uh, Just on the driveway, uh, uh, advertised on social media, mainly next door, which turned out to be a great thing to do. And people come out, hang out in the street, sit in the yards across uh, from us. uh, And for several of those shows, I've had this... uh, um, Piano player named Morris Nels, a couple other rhythm section players to join us, and and we all just know how to read chord changes and and make a tune sound like a tune even when you know all you've got is the chord sheet. And plus, Morris is a, is turning into a wonderful singer and a wonderful band leader, and he can just kind of make decisions about the arrangement as we go. And since he's the piano player, it's real easy to just follow him. Everybody's listening real hard, and
1: And these are like standards, these are written, pre written tunes, or or not original stuff. That's right, right. standards,
2: yeah, not not original standards that you know the the great American songbook you may have heard referred to, which is a lot of the standards come from that period, and then more recent stuff too. Uh, but stuff that becomes part of the jazz vocabulary, tunes that theoretically any jazz players can get together and make something happen. They're all going
1: to know. The so tunes. as a horn player, I feel like you always have a leg up unless you're a jazz, you know, a jazz guy, I'm mean, more kind of the rock background. I love jazz. I listen to a lot of jazz music and XM jazz. That's all I really listen to if I'm in the car, of course, I haven't been in the car much these this last year, but uh, you mm-hmm. know, like um, but there's the whole real book in this whole big, you know, hundreds of tunes. Right. And some guys just know these fricking tunes. And like you said, you know, and can play them in every key. It's crazy. Right. I mean, I've, I've played a couple of them, but what are, what are some of your favorites or some of those absolute standards that everybody knows and are, and everybody loves? And do you have any particular ones that that are your favorites?
2: Uh, well, I always, uh, uh, love this go-to Sonny Rollins tune called Doxy. Okay. Uh, and, and not a lot of people have heard it necessarily, but it's, there's not a lot to it harmonically. And yet it's a framework that you can get really experimental within and, and just go to town. It's, it's like a blues in that it's not too complicated, um, but uh, it's just catchy. And I don't hear a lot of people call it, so I love to call it. Too. And that's uh,
1: so it's a simple tune that you can kind of get, get on pretty quick because there's not a lot of uh, key changes and stuff like that. Is it just a in right. a kind of a blues exactly. structure like 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 Blue Monk's a good example of that, right? Like just kind of a, a blues mm-hmm. tune, basically, right? I mean, it's real simple, real straightforward. Yeah, it's
2: it's very straightforward, and you know, you don't even necessarily have to know the melody right. to, to make something happen with it. Somebody else can play the melody for you.
1: Yeah, that's the thing about now when you're playing like as a jazz guy, right? So the, the key is <laughs> a little bit of jazz stuff that I've kind of done piano wise is like you, you start learning. I started learning like uh, some basic tunes like everybody knows, like Autumn Leaves or Blue Vasa or whatever, and, mm. and actually went and started learning them in different keys. And But but improvising, is especially piano, is so difficult trying to actually keep a moving bass line. And not just, mm-hmm. piano, or even comping chords while soloing, because I can kind of go one or the other. But man, doing them together—that's a lot, yeah. you know. And oh yeah, I have so much respect for piano players. Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, um, well, and to make it, flash, I have like you know, because then you get, and it doesn't matter what instrument I'm playing on, like because I think what happens at first is like because then you're kind of you're processing chord by chord, and so you're kind of playing over each chord. But then someone who's an advanced, mm-hmm. you know, sort of jazzer is going to be like. That's shit <laughs> you want, you want lines that, like flow right you want you want to create these lines, so when you're improvising on something like that, are you kind of seeing it seems to me like a lot of, a lot of guys see like this snapshot of like two five ones right and and then you, you just sort of play lines over this, and then if there's another two five one key, you're kind of playing a line on that. is that a, a general approach? I mean I know it's a super generic question, but
2: it, it is it is uh you know you you get these these cliches under your belt. You know, you've worked out all these patterns or these cliches and and they have a starting place. Like, I know that this cliche starts on the dominant seventh of the the dominant seventh chord, starting on that note. Uh, Or I have a pattern that starts on the third Uh, and then I just I take off. I think about the fact that, yeah, I need to start here because I'm in this set of chord changes but then i kind of just let go and hopefully uh uh my my muscle memory will take over muscle memory combined with just how creative can we get where can we go within this harmonic framework
1: yeah because once you have that comfort level i think a lot of it too is just knowing especially the more complex the tune gets. Cause if you know, a, a ba- a, that's the thing about bebop or things that are moving by real fast. And there's a lot of changes. It's so easy to just like, if you're in a blues framework or autumn leaves, it's like, it doesn't take too long to be like comfortable within the framework. And it's, you're not going to mm-hmm. get lost. Right. It, it, yeah. The keys it, aren't changing. Bebop, so well. In one of those like, yeah. more complex tunes like that. For me, I'm going like, Oh my God. Like it's as long as you can know where the hell you are somewhere, then you can know where to put your period. <laughs> right. It's that uh-huh, you get—you right. don't know where the hell you are, and you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you just have a yeah, great ear, yeah. you know, and you can just go fly right in there. Which some people can. I well, say. and and that's
2: why I love to learn tunes. Um, you know, by by maybe just just outlining the chord changes, just like playing one three five seven or seven five three one over every change, and learning a tune like that actually mike stern the piano i mean the guitar player mike stern gave a master class at ut when i was there and he suggested that he said don't you know don't make it too complicated do something that's reasonable and that will kind of teach you the skeleton or the framework of the tune doing something like that would
1: absolutely the starting point right and
2: then of course he gets real cerebral and starts to you know then do the five three seven one and all this other stuff, and by that time, I'm ready, ready to just kind of leave it to the universe. Uh-huh. <laughs> you mean he's <laughs> just, e- 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 just, just
1: basically going, like, I, how many different ways can I... Inversions, yeah. This, I see, right, okay. Yeah. yeah,
2: and, and yeah, being able to say in your head ahead of time, I'm playing this inversion on this chord, wow, that gives you a lot of dexterity that somebody else might not have. Mm-hmm. Um I rely on my intuition so much just because I spent so long learning by ear that uh, it's been, it was hard actually to go back and try to dissect it and say, Oh, okay, this thing that I've always played, this is why it works. And I can transpose it now and learn it in these other keys. Right, And it's going to be meaningful to me. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, and from playing by ear. So I think a lot of guys, you know, you can, play by ear can kind of be a misnomer because I feel like most people have some idea of like, why well, I'm playing a C and the fifth, of C is a G you at least have some idea what's sure. going on. Right. Um, but I think a lot of guys, when you're doing that, you're playing, you, you know, your intervals very well and you're, and you're playing by ear and maybe you're thinking about them or maybe it's just intuitive. Right. And so, you know, when you're playing a dominant seventh and you know, when you're, whether you're really thinking about it or not. Right. So, especially on a, on an mm-hmm. instrument like that, that's a strictly melodic instrument, right? Not like, piano or, or guitar where you can have these create chord clusters it's all it's all one note at a time right for sax yeah you know i mean right I, I i had a guitar player get on me for that
2: once he said man you got it so easy you just got one note at a time
1: yeah so, but i mean and he was right I, you know you could look at that <laughs> the opposite way and be like but it and if you looked at it in a different way i would say that it actually forces you to Uh, think a little harder or or you know what i mean because you have to go i can't create that simultaneously i have to look at how i can create this you know melodically so everything every phrase everything has to be done in a melodic fashion right but i think that's Mm -hmm. that's where i was kind of going was like so i I would i would imagine like you naturally developed a, a really good ear in terms of where your pitch was and what you were trying to express that way right and then just taking that back to a place where you're like well let me analyze this and think about what each of these notes are and how they react to these chords or that, or why is every single thing I'm doing right here making sense at this point in the tune, right? Is almost Mm -hmm. reverse engineering what you were doing, right? Yeah. mm -hmm.
2: And, And to a large extent, I didn't like doing it because all of a sudden it wasn't fun. There was, you know, everything up to that point had been fun. I was just doing what I wanted to do learning what I wanted to learn because I didn't have these demands on me. I wasn't uh, getting hired by a bunch of groups by the, at that point who said, okay, you learn these tunes and this material. I, I was free to just enjoy the albums that I was digging on and, and maybe try to emulate those or, or not play for a while or, you know, just do whatever. And then all of a sudden, when you turn it into homework, it can be a little, a little daunting, a little uh, tedious, a little tiresome, but you know the reward off of doing that is so great. You just remind yourself, "Gosh, if I could just if I can just notate this out and and work it out, God, everything's going to get more wonderful." Well, you, and you, it does yeah, every and now time. you
1: can be more snobby as well and say things like "nice, nice." <laughs> really <Freudian." laughs> like that flat. Well, I never could talk about
2: it much. I hear these guys talk about all, all this theory stuff, and it's like, oh, I don't know where they're going with that.
1: I just, I just don't know. Interesting, uh, But I can play you a cool lick, yeah. lick in D7 yeah. if you want. I, I, I think the interesting <laughs> thing about theory is, I think theory is awesome. I, I love it. But like when I first started learning, I was like, I learned a bunch of patterns and that these are the modes. Well, okay, I'm learning patterns on a guitar that if I start here and I play this, sure, I'm playing that mode. But it's only there's got to be a context what chord am I playing behind? That determines what the, what yeah. it is, right? And so it kind of took me a while mm-hmm. later. I mean, it was good for me developing the mechanics and technique of in learning the fretboard to a certain yeah. degree. But what you realize later, and I think, is like at the end, they all it meets in the middle, right? The ears and the in the theory, because it's like if you don't know how to express that over a set of chord changes or on or, or a stagnant chord, even, and and what those tones mean, what that modal sound means. If you can't express that musically and know what you're trying to say with it musically, who cares if you know a bunch of fucking jargon, like you know, and a bunch of patterns? Yeah, it doesn't really. I don't think it really comes into real life, uh, uh, you know, use until you're actually putting it to a tune and you're playing it against a harmonic backdrop to a certain degree, right? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the people that came
2: out of North Texas were like that. They were just, you know, North Texas became this. Jazz musician machine, and they could churn out all these people who could play anything, you know, over any set of changes and just make something happen. Uh, but a lot of them, it was so mechanical sounding that it wasn't anything I wanted to listen yeah. to.
1: Yeah, I've same thing with same thing with guitar. I mean, I've I used yeah. to kind of um, and I've accepted it. and I've, I've, I'm okay with it nowadays. And I know my my uh, technical limitations, and it can be a bit frustrating <sighs> in certain situations. I can't go play, you know, crazy prog metal or or hard jazz. But I mean, that's almost that bebop is a whole other level. You know, there's so many facets to these different genres, right? Like, but mm-hmm. but the under the overall understanding of music and the language of music. And I know like you learn to, I think be comfortable, become comfortable with how you play and what you play and what your influence has, have created. And I kind of like with you, like I really enjoy the knowledge that I have and being able to use that, you know, especially when you're writing and you're thinking and you're problem solving or whatever the case may be. But I also love the idea of just like being able to throw things away and not overthink and just create things and, and not, like you said, not where everything is so mechanical and rigid, where you're just following a set of drills and that you've done a billion times, and just let the music mm-hmm. be free. I think a lot of the, my favorite things that I've ever created is just improv. That I go back and go, "Wow, what did I play?" and then I go track that solo on something, you know, and because it's just happens mm. in the moment. I think there's something. I was always that way too, more of kind of an improviser, right? And from a piano standpoint, more in a classical, pretty pretty straightforward one, four, five, you know, class triadic type stuff. And then you know, guitar same way. I've got a little bit of fusion touch, but like, um, yeah, man. I but I I always just played like like you said, you know, I'd learn the basics of a tune and just play, play, play and improvise like crazy. And it's funny because yeah. a lot of people. Uh, you get these different schools of thought. There's definitely the classic – you mentioned the jazz guy. I, I always talk about the, the classical piano. That They learn to read, and they can read a Beethoven piece like nobody's business. But then you're like, hey, let's jam, and they're just like, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, no idea. Yeah. Like, deer in headlights, and people get really afraid. I've had to kind of learn how to teach, how to approach even starting to improvise because not everybody – has that like, oh, I'm just going to like play some notes and this feels good and this is exciting. A lot of people are very like, I don't know what to do. This is, you know, scary. So, yeah, you you
2: teach piano and guitar, yeah. right? Uh, are you teaching a lot of improvisation?
1: Um, it, it usually kind of eventually, I mean, it, it kind of jumps all over, you know, student by student and wherever. But mm. but I, I almost always, you know, speaking of the blues, obviously, it almost always starts with sort of, uh, you know, We'll learn the major scale. And, you know, we'll talk about relative this and that, and the pentatonic, and then sort of the, the pentatonic patterns as they're laid out on the guitar. And, and basically, you know, then the idea of just like here's here's your core. I've even started going. Um, just uh, you know, Ulrich Ellison, right? You know that dude, guitarist. <laughs> uh, he's got a work. He yeah. started a workshop and this whole big thing that he invited me to uh, as kind of a, a guinea pig and, and where he first started it. So I went to several of his uh, online things that he's been doing and he does a lot of examples where he just plays over a drone and i'm like what a great idea just a stagnant drone keep it super simple and so just having people play that and, and sort of hear how look look all these tones sound cool but this one's particular yeah. you know this is the tonic and this is the third kind of going with that and then trying to get him like you said then you start to stockpile kind of a combination of of knowing where you're your intent, your intent is, your periods are like, and your land, your landing points, right? Your chord tones. And mm-hmm. then also building that sort of stockpile of licks and, and, and runs or whatever, right? So when you're playing, it's kind of a combination of you're creating some melody in your head on the fly, learning to repeat. That's something, a big thing, I think, is learning to create like motifs and, and repeat. Because what I see a lot of times people, they sort of, they learn a pattern. They just go, go, go. And it's like, no, 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 stop. Like, do something and then do it again in the exact same rhythmic parameters, right? And create something memorable and then spin off of that a little bit, like a blues call and response. Yeah. Right? Learning those. Yeah. Songs, the kind of thing yeah. that
2: once you hear that solo several times, it's still interesting. Exactly. And so it's because you just, you figured out what that soloist is. Doing. I feel like
1: that's what I've been doing more and more because literally I used to just go like, uh, Okay, cool. Like now you know you're a Now jam and people are like what? That's <laughs> so like okay. So we gotta like learn. What does that mean? And so kind of building up to that. And then I see how people get comfortable with that when they the the you know they start to kind of go. Oh yeah, these these notes do sound good. But that's a big thing I've been talking about a lot lately is just that idea of like create something that you can create again. You know, don't drift so far away. You forgot Ooh. where you even started do something and then do it again and then come over here and then come back here and then come and then do that again, but in an octave. And and then, so you keep building on a center idea because that's what everything does anyway, right? Music is all about a melody, Uh whether it's a jazz tune with the head and then you can go into outer space and then come back home or a symphony where you've got a super simple melody and a 40 piece orchestra doing all these elaborations and modulations and all this, but you're still right. So many times it's just a simple little melody is at the core of all of all this music. Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, and being able to record yourself and review and figure out what you're doing wrong and what you're doing, right. You you get a lot of that. That's what I've been
1: trying to do Um, a lot more lately, especially with the pandemic and everyone's kind of going like, you can't sit in a classroom. And so it's been like, everyone's kind of been, well, getting GarageBand or or getting some, uh, able, uh, you know, uh, Audacity, right? Like um, these programs yeah. that that either come with the Mac or you can get it for free. So, and learning the very basic fundamentals of how do you record yourself. Back once upon a time, you know, it was cassette tapes, right, and four track cassette recorders. Right, but it. now it's you know it's all digital. Everybody has a computer, so learning how to do that. You're right because you'll you'll never just like we meet me with this podcast. I had no idea how horrible my voice was until I started talking on the clock (laughs) you got to hear yourself you know and and then you go oh wow i'm really not that's that's messy i hear all the mistakes or yeah i'm not really coming Mm -hmm. back and playing you're absolutely right i think that's the the sooner someone can can play with a group of they're two such different things right so playing in a group context that's something I try. i like to do also is like sort of playing in a band context playing drums you know which is fun for me but being the glue so people get a feel for playing together But then now, especially in this pandemic, it's been a lot of sort of like teaching how to record yourself and that mindset. And I think once a musician understands that those two different dynamics, like you're in a pretty good place, like you understand how to read. There's such different situations, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. Again, I mentioned these uh, driveway shows. Every one of those got recorded. And so I was able to review the shows the very next day after every one. And I feel like I improved more in this last year just from having done that on a consistent basis than maybe the previous three years. I used to
1: record, uh, yeah, I used to record uh, when my band played. We, we, I used to always take a video camera and try to record as many shows as I could just for that purpose, yeah, you know, yeah. like to, to watch yourself. Yeah. And if you've got the time
2: to go back and review yeah. it, you can get so much Absolutely. out of it.
1: So tell us it's like, like oh my god I'll never do that again <laughs> like the that. funny the funny things too <laughs> like I, I know like uh, like I remember one time I played a it, it just physical <laughs> mannerisms and stuff of course I do all kinds of ridiculous things on stage but I remember one time I I played something and I was chewing gum I've never chewed gum at a show since then because I looked in my mind I thought I just looked like a douche like hi everybody I'm so cool wow, chewing gum and mm-hmm. I was just like oh that looks horrible I don't ever want to do that. <laughs> So, you know, it's like you, whether it's your how you look and presenting or your, of course, what you're actually playing. But speaking of the driveway shows and recording those, is that something that people can go watch? Is that available somewhere online or or no?
2: Uh, I've got a show coming up on May 1st and one on May 15th. And it's just right out there in the street. I'm on Market Garden, real close to Brisbane. What the hell is
1: that? (laughs) Um,
2: uh, South Austin, uh, do you know where? Where, where uh, William Cannon and Westgate oh, are, it's a little south of there. Oh, man.
1: May fifteenth. Yeah. I'm going to put this in my calendar right now. So May first and May fifteenth, they're both
2: Saturdays, and they're both six p.m. to seven thirty. Awesome.
1: I'm pretty sure. And Vic is relatively south too, or very south actually. Um, Vic used to be one of those weirdo <laughs> Northerners, but now he got with the program and. That's right. Oh, thank God. There's something <laughs> about North Austin, I don't want to man. go there. It's, it's just... just <sighs> I meet someone that lives in Georgetown. I was like, so nice meeting you. I'll never see you again. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but yet, oh, every band I've met, everyone lives all over the fucking place. Like, one guy will live in Kyle, and someone else lives in Lampat. Like, literally, it's ridiculous. So it's like... Uh, well, yeah. that wasn't a big deal, maybe 20
2: years ago. But now that it's impossible to get across uh,
1: town yeah. and any... Short period yeah.
0: of time. Oh, I, I think downtown is too far north for me now.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. See, once you come to the once you come to the south side, like you're like, oh, dude, I, I, I yeah. If you have to Vic, cross the you, riverside, you're are like, you oh, south god, of oh, Dude, he's in Kyle. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm in Kyle. Oh Kyle. Oh yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what, if I if I have to go somewhere and it's past seventy nine, I'm like, oh god, that's way up there.
1: See now uh. now you know how we all felt <laughs> back in the day when you're like party at my place. You're like, oh god, I guess I'll. I guess I'll go play some gu- – we, uh, we had some fun parties back at Vic's old house, though. Uh, oh, guitar
0: yeah. Guitar Hero. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure. Guitar <laughs> –
1: it was like a guitar player guy that was all getting all mad, like real competitive with Guitar Hero. And I'm like, dude, this is like boring. It's not even like playing guitar to me anyway. I never got – as a real guitar player, I like I never like – I was so bored with that game. Remember that thing? Well, why
2: would you – if you're going to spend the time – to learn how to play that game. Why don't you just learn the guitar? Seriously,
1: it's so ridiculous. I would have students that would spend hours and hours and hours and hours playing that fucking game, and then it's like, whoop-de-woo, you know? And, and then and I'm like, so did you learn yeah. that G chord yet? No. You know, it's like, I, I, this is a yeah. story I always tell. And thank God this is not a thing anymore, but around the time I started teaching guitar, uh, was you know, in 2006 when I started working at a school, I would get, you know, these these guys and back then I just had I just taught, you know, several hours all day, you know, every day and ugh, I, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but it would just be like a bunch of kids. Some of them were really cool teenagers, some of them are people that are still my friends to this day. You know, I have some great students. But, but I'd get those kids, it was something about the time and what was going on with the emo rock bands of the time and the whole guitar here. I'd get these guys and they come in with the hair hanging in the face. Yeah, I just want to let Vince Sevenfold, man, and I'm like Okay, so did you learn like the chords that we talked about since you just started two weeks ago? Yeah, but like, I want to learn like a solo. And I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> I swear to God, this happened, right? So there's this kid, and he, and it's like the end of the day, and I've been teaching him for like six hours, and I'm exhausted. I'm just like, oh, my brain. And he's like, wants to learn this Avenged Sevenfold Solo, right? So I'm like, figuring out this solo, and it's this arpeggio <laughs> thing, or whatever. I'm like, okay, I think that, you know, writing it out. I'm Like, okay, I think it's like this, like this arpeggio, and then this. And he's like, are you sure there's not another note? Because on Guitar Hero, it goes like green, orange, orange. I'm like, that happened. <laughs> I'm like, dude, Guitar Hero is that's, not good. It's just embarrassing. Yeah, it's just like. Fortunately, that's not really
0: a thing. That was only
1: like a couple of kids, but I was just like, yeah, I don't. It, it was a long career. enough
0: to, for South Park to make a fun of it. Yeah, yeah I don't. Oh, like, that's okay. good. If you've yeah.
1: never seen the South Park episode of. That, where they made fun of Guitar Hero, you should find that fucker. It's oh jeez, I'm, I'm sure I would love so it. Brilliant! Yeah. Like, hey, I was just
2: revisiting. Uh, I was just revisiting an old South Park episode the other night. It was one of my favorite. Very early, early on, there was a two-parter where we were going to find out who Cartman's father was. Denver
1: Broncos, was. right?
2: And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that was one of the possibilities that it was the Denver Broncos. Turned out it was it was the mother. She was a hermaphrodite. And, and then, then it's determined that they don't know who Cartman's mother is. And then it just stops there and we never revisit wow. the topic again. But but they were supposed to show that part two on... And it was in the 90s. And it was going to be on April 1st, Wednesday, April 1st on Comedy Central. And so we're just about to see it. And then the, the screen flashes. Episode two will not be shown tonight. So that we can show you this special presentation of Terrence and Philip, <laughs> and it was the "Not Without My Anus" episode, which to this day has to be the funniest oh, South Park man. episode I've ever ever seen. About these, you know, they're mocking these Canadian yeah. characters, and uh, oh, it's just
1: ridiculous! It's just ridiculous. Yeah, well, dude, we could easily have an entire podcast on just South Park episodes. Like that would uh, not yeah. be a problem, but. I, it, it's been a while now, right? Because that was probably, what, 2007, thousand I'm imagining that's when Guitar Hero came like It was real big. So I bet it was all the way back then. But, yeah, it's a good one, man. Well, well The guys, like, yeah. there's, like, the... And they do the whole thing. Like, the whole thing, like, the rise and fall of a band. and The, the big record executives like, oh, these
0: guys are the best <laughs> Guitar Hero players. And, so, and they
1: make this whole big, like, band out of them. And then they have the rise to fame and then the fall. And, and so then, like... He's like – one of the, one of them's like playing him in like an old bowling alley. <laughs> just like, just, <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous. And then there's like the one kid who's like super good and he's like standing, like not plugged into anything, just like practicing like some outside somewhere. And it's like click, 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 click. And you're like, listen to him go. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, and then the punchline at the end of the episode is just classic South Park. Brilliant. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Mm, mm. Brilliant. Trey Trey and Matt, brilliant guys. Uh, We were talking about this fairly recently. Yeah, I'm a massive Trey Parker, Matt Stone fan, and like the whole, you know, uh, Team America. I mean, what a brilliant movie that Mm. is, dude. And the soundtrack. Did you ever see The Book of Mormon? Do you know that?
2: Yes. I was lucky enough to get to see it with the original cast, Third Row Center, on Broadway. Wow.
0: Actually, oh, nice holy cow
2: the original the original run uh amazing, just amazing um and and you know they poke fun at every religion, nobody was spared. that's
1: why I love those guys because they play fair, they don't. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, a lot of guys, they're these the comedians and this and that. And then it's like, I look at that as like, look, I understand, like, everyone's got their political opinions and this and that. But I feel like part of your responsibility to a certain degree as an entertainer, especially on a national stage, if you're a late night talk show host or something, it's like, you got to play fair. Like, you know, and you're always allowed to make fun of the president. You're also, I mean, sure. But like when that, if you just pick one thing and that's all you do and just like, oh, come on, man. And South Park has never done that. Like, they just... Yeah, like no one is spared ever. They just destroy everybody. Same with the with the musical and everything else. You're you're right. I mean, it's just like nobody is spared. Yeah. And they're like it's amazing. I don't know how they I don't know how they have any money left. Their lawyers must be super busy. I'm sure so many people have tried to sue them. Oh, yeah. But
2: Well, there was yeah, the, um I, I think they were uh, they had to clear this one episode with the censor and they were going to use I guess it was the word yeah, shit, like
1: a, like 50 a whole bunch of time. times.
2: Right. And, and the censor says, we're going to fine you X amount of money for each time that you say it. And so they just did the censor a favor and had a little counter at the bottom of the screen <laughs> that kept increasing yeah. as they said it more and more times.
1: That's, man, that's <laughs> that's the American dream right there. Like. You get rich enough yeah. to just, and you know you're popular enough, and there's enough of demand what you're doing that you can just be like, oh, cool. We can't do that. Well, how much do we owe you if we do? Boom. You know, it's just like, yeah. and then you're uh-huh. just gonna keep. And I feel like they just they kept getting bigger and bigger, and because of it, because they never held back, they mm-hmm. never caved. Can't say that about too many. Oh people yeah. Now, you know? Anyway.
2: So they're the part of the fabric of our culture now. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, the, Sim- as the much Simpsons as- and South Park. Those have got to be the longest-running shows yeah. on television. I mean, Simpsons is absurd. They've been yeah. around for 30, 20. No, dude. Almost 30, right? More than like 28? 28. Long time. Long time. Oh, what's us see. Uh, over 30 years. Hmm. And then South yeah. Park's been around for uh, 20 years now.
2: Yeah. I suddenly remember, you know, you, you say Simpsons, and I always think of uh, of, of Homer uh, he's about to, uh, have an affair with Michelle Pfeiffer and, you know, she's animated as Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer. I, that's not her name in the, in the show, but, but she has been, uh, trying to seduce him and then somehow a plate of cookies convinces him that, uh, that he needs to, to go ahead and pursue this affair. And so he meets her at the hotel. And they're about to get into it, and he starts crying, and and uh, uh, she says, "Well, Homer, why are you crying?" And and he says, "Well, because we're gonna we're gonna have to have sex now, and it's gonna ruin my marriage or whatever." And and uh, um, well, well, why why do you know that's gonna happen? Uh, well, because the cookie told me so, uh, uh, and she she warned him that well, you know, cookies aren't always right. But Homer argues, "Yes, but they're so sweet and tasty." So.
1: Did, did you guys ever see the movie? Because I still have not seen the Simpsons movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How mm-hmm.
2: was it? I mean, it was—it wasn't really memorable, was it?
1: No, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess when you have like a thousand okay. episodes of your series, it's just kind of another long episode, right?
0: I mean, there's been so many great episodes of the season Throughout the entire run, I mean, it it must be really hard to put together an actual movie plot and just extend that for like two, you know, hour and a half, two hours.
2: Yeah, because you you depend on that certain format and they follow that certain half hour format for so long.
1: That's a good point. Well, um, is that where it ends? Simpsons and South Park? Remember? <laughs> we got away from the music. No, that's, dude, this has probably been one of the, uh, our best podcasts in terms of there has been, knock on wood, there has been no horrible technical issues so far. Uh, we we actually talked about music for over an hour and didn't immediately ruin things oh, okay. like talk of porn and stuff like that. So, I mean, this, is, this has been a pretty successful <laughs> episode, man. Yeah. Oh, man, I knew this guy
2: in the medical field. He had this huge Playboy collection. And uh, during Snowpocalypse, he lost the collection. Uh, it, it, a pipe burst and, and the water got all over it. See,
1: here's the thing oh, about God. that. It's like awful. I mean, man, that's old school. I, this is a hilarious Adam Carolla thing I remember from like, maybe that show Love Line or something way back where he was talking, he always was telling masturbation jokes and stuff and he was hilarious, but he was saying like, yeah, but you know, back in, in, you know, my grandfather's day, he had to lay in a field and wait for a cloud in the shape of a tit, you know? It's like, a, <laughs> but, but you think back now to like to Playboys, if you're like a, a you know, a, yeah. Ten or twelve year old b- boy or something from our generation, you're going like, ooh, Playboy. Like a Playboy now is like, really? It's like a naked woman, whatever. <laughs> it's Like, <laughs>
2: I mean, well, and, you, and uh, like, you know, when you don't, <laughs> and when you don't have access to Playboy, it's it's just like the uh,
1: the Sears catalog. Oh yeah, it's, dude. It's uh, or the, the days, <laughs> like. You can log in. I mean, I feel bad for parents that got to have all these, you know, fucking safety or security bullshit to keep their kids oh yeah. yeah it's because firewalls oh, and man. Stuff. i mean once upon a time like there was nothing you had to like go to a, a 7-eleven like covered in shame when you were like 18 to buy a hustler or something and <laughs> before that you're right it was like victoria's <laughs> secret you know like every guy probably got caught with a victoria's secret magazine under his mattress at some point but like Cry. nowadays i mean it's just like there's no like a to z it's just like <laughs> there's not a slow progression of like oh boobs and vagina no it's like Double anal. We <laughs> are welcome, 10 year old. Hi yeah. on the internet. You know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. something like mm-hmm. kind of. Like, there was like, I don't know. It was like more exciting back in the day to like the, the hunt. <laughs> the hunt for porn. Was, that was part of it. Yeah, yeah the hunt exactly. was part so, of it. The excitement of driving home from your first adult yeah. video store. But like, uh, 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 my Yep, she's here. It's <laughs> like, oh God, there he goes. We made it through an hour. She's looking, <laughs> we made it through an hour with no porn talk. Uh, so, but the, uh, or was I going with this? I, not important at all, but I want to finish it. <laughs> hey, I've got a good masturbation oh, joke, please. if if, we, if I can include
2: it. <laughs> and and it goes, it's really it goes no further than, you know, the use of the word. But a um, guy goes to see his doctor and uh, the doctor tells the guy, sir, you're going to have to stop masturbating. And, and the, the fellow's, Says to his doctor, but doc, why? And the doctor goes, so that I can finish this examination.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember they made that joke about me. It's my one joke that I know. Uh, dude, I don't know. I can never remember jokes. Some people are those are those people that can just rattle off joke after joke. I, I cannot remember jokes to save my life. Vic, are you a joke guy? We got to have a short one. Yeah. No, I mean, I always used to tell the Invisible Man joke. That's the only joke that I knew from when I was like a kid, and I just thought it was the funniest thing. Can you still
2: tell yeah, it? Was like
1: a, man, I haven't told this joke since I was probably a fucking teenager. Like, uh, it was like, oh, geez. Now i going to be like my mom trying to tell a joke. She printed off the internet and just fucking it up the whole time. Oh, wait, was it? who uh, oh, oh, was it? No, like, uh, it was like something about like, oh, man, what was it? Like, Superman's flying yeah, Superman's flying around and he sees Wonder Woman just like sprawled out naked like sunbathing on this uh rooftop or some shit, right? So he just flies down and just real fast, right? And just gets went off and flies away. And Wonder Woman kinda of is startled and she's like, Oh my god, what was that? And the invisible man just goes, I don't know, but my ass hurts. <laughs> so that's that's my one joke i remembered for like twenty whatever years. Well, you gotta, have, you gotta have, one. have one. That's it. You gotta have at Vic least tell one. Tell me you got something better.
0: Mm-hmm. No, not really.
1: <laughs> well, but but Vic has
2: that voice. See, Vic doesn't need a joke. He's just got the
1: voice. No, guys like me have to try to be funny, like to try to like get girls. Vic just goes hi, I'm Vic, and they're like,
0: oh, <laughs> and <then> they swarm <laughs> around him.
1: Yeah, yeah, Vic's the guy. I have made the joke for right. It's like the guy. Like I'll be the guy. Like all night long. Like and they're like, ugh, you know, and then like Vic's like. Hi, I'm Dick. And then they just leave with Dick because he's just, you know, it's all about Mm -hmm. the voice. (laughs) He's been flattered so much on this podcast about his voice. He's going to start getting an ego. Masturbating to himself. Oh. Masturbating to his voice. (laughs)
2: Listen
1: listen to that voice.
2: (laughs) Oh, so how about those ASMR videos? Hmm? You're talking about masturbating to a voice. They have these... uh, on on YouTube, you can find these ASMR videos, and I'm not I don't remember what it stands for, but it's basically people talking very quietly in a whisper, just just being very calm and controlled, and that the listeners of these things they're getting off to it somehow they, they they're getting something out of it. Yeah, and I don't know what they're well, doing well, while they're getting something out of it, but. But there's a big uh, demand for these you know, videos. No, no, no matter what it
1: is, there's always going to be some pervert that makes it sexual, right? Because you've got that it's probably designed to like be calming and hey, we're just yeah. gonna watch the, the 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 stream is flowing like like Bob Ross, right? And then someone's like, oh, this yeah. is turning me on, you know? Like there was a thing, uh, <laughs> like, there was something about there's a thing, and it's I think it's um I don't know what country like Japan or sounds some Asian country, <laughs> but like, I swear there's a thing. There's a whole like thing. Apparently I probably have heard about this from Italo, but like where chicks just eat and it's like, got, like it's like yeah. a thing. And they got like millions of followers and like dudes, Dude, watch girls eat. I knew you were going to say that. I
2: knew that's what you were going to bring up because this came up the other day. And, and so in, in, uh, in the people that are making these videos in competition, in, in an effort to try to outdo each other they're eating crazier and crazier stuff, and there's been at least one instance of a guy dying while he's eating something, and someone else choking, and you know just all that kind of stuff. No, it's so,
1: and then of course you can search for those videos too. I mean, here's the thing: it's like you know, this, the whole kind of perverted and taboo stuff has been around forever, I'm sure, especially since you know print came and then tell in video and now the internet. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to get away from those every disgusting thing you could ever imagine is out there you know but now it's it's all it's like it's in the mainstream with this Gen Z stuff, right? They're like, "Oh, I'll do the tie pod challenge. I'll do the cum drink challenge or whatever the case may be." <laughs> and so you're just like, uh, you know, <laughs> It's seriously though, like they will do anything for like, "Oh, I'll get more TikTok views or whatever." And you're right, dude. Like for so more or yeah, you got people eating First, cockroaches yeah. and doing tie pods and killing themselves doing dumb shit. I'm like, I don't even mean to sound super insensitive, but kind of like, I mean, that's darwinism, dude. Fuck you. Like if you're that dumb, <laughs> you know what I mean? Play play stupid games. Yeah, right. exactly. Stupid games, stupid prizes. I mean, we we lived in a time where we did dumb shit and, like, you know, we rode our bikes with no helmets and we played after dark. And you know, thank God mm-hmm. we're all st- still here. I mean, we didn't have a there wasn't a mass shooting Somehow. every single day when we were kids that I recall. Yeah, that. but I'll tell you what, man,
2: I, I, I feel very lucky. Yeah. To have, to have been a kid when there was no social media, no internet, yeah. you know, none of that. Cause it was, it's hard enough being yeah. a kid and, and finding your place, finding where you belong without all that other pressure. I mean, the biggest pressure I remember from, from school was, uh, I think it was in eighth grade and, and, and they did this carnation sale. And so. All these chicks, they were hoping that they'd get the most carnations. So the, the girls would buy each other carnations just to make sure that the popular girls had a whole bunch of carnations that they could bring home. And and the poor girls that maybe didn't have many friends, she maybe got one, two, maybe zero. And dude, why should she dude, be put through that? I have that? talked you about know?
1: this. So one of my best friends, Dave, who was on one of our very first podcasts, and we've got to, we, you know, we know each other inside out and talk about – Porn 99% of the time or whatever, but like it, but we know all that kind of stuff. And it's so funny because we've talked about, we, you know, we went to high school together and stuff and, um, it's so ridiculous Be- that, that whole popularity click thing. Right. And that's, that's, and nowadays you got a cyber bullying, all this bullshit, but, but yeah, it's so bizarre because literally you've got some, you could have the, the popular girl you know, and everyone wants to be with a popular girl, she might she might be like, okay, but not even like the best looking girl. And then you got some other girl that's like gorgeous, but you're like, oh, she's like the poor, not popular girl. It's like, don't you wish you could just slap yeah. the fuck out of yourself and like always go back in time and just be like, oh, fuck all you guys. <laughs> oh, I yeah. like hook up with this totally this hot nerd <laughs> that plays the French horn. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: no kidding. You know, my when I first got to to college, you know, I was still pretty naive um, when I first started college. And my older brother, eight years my senior, he had me and a bunch of my little friends over to his apartment here in Austin, and 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 he told said, said "Guys, listen, I, I need, I can't impress this upon y'all enough. Have sex with anything that moves, just." <laughs> Because this is when you're going to be able to do it. You're going to regret it if you don't. I swear, I promise there's, you. <laughs> there's something to be
1: said about that in a weird way, and uh, I have a horror story I won't share. It it may be uh, one of the few things they take to my grave, but there's like, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Because I think you can easily put you get you it, the you put people on pedestals in this whole big thing, right? And in some weird way, I almost agree. Like it's almost like just get it over with. And so you're like, you know. Okay, now I can think clearly and, 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 you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I I don't know. I think I had that problem for, for, you, with, you, with, you, just like with that whole thing, the notion <clears throat> of sex and the opposite sex and being with somebody. And it's like, I mean, some people, if it's a religious thing, I respect that, but I'm not, I'm not so much, and I, I'm not saying like, should sure. be a whore, or, uh, you know, or anything like that, but it's just like, I think like sometimes like you just overthink everything and you're so worried about what someone else thinks. Mm-hmm. Like if just like if you literally just, I think so many times in my life oh. I just literally had gone up to someone and said, hi, that's all it would have taken. was hi, but you're just like, yeah. Oh, geez, yeah, amazing thing. It's like, no, she's just some girl like, you know, right. That, that probably right. wants someone to talk. Yeah. Jeez, man. I,
2: I can remember thinking that if I had my hair just right, that that would be the yeah. ticket, you know. That would get the chick, you know. <laughs> and now, <laughs> now I just shave down and have nothing. but you know? What's so, uh, that irony
1: though, too? That I that I think, um, where it's so isn't it weird how it, it's the? Uh, I think it's the same with with a lot of things. Like if you, like people read your your energy, or like if you if you're all showered and you're you're like oh, I'm gonna. I'm going to get laid tonight, um, you know, and, and then you go out there and you stand on the corner like a doofus or whatever, and, or, you know, you don't hook but then you're that night when you're like, I don't give a fuck, fuck everything. And you don't shower and you smell like balls. And then you, some, and then all of a sudden you meet some gorgeous chick because she, there's this like thing that she's just like, this dude doesn't give a fuck and that's cool. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that like that, that yeah. quiet confidence or that, that um, indifference that is an attract can be an attractive thing. That's, that's yes. True. Very it's true. it's like indifference yeah. it's indifference and, and the girls can sense it yeah
0: very attractive quality Yeah,
1: especially girls but you should, you should still shower <laughs> you should still still shower but um you know i mean yeah yeah but i know what you exactly well, I, what you mean yeah yeah i mean, just speaking you're from you're my own like, personal experience and then after one night she was like no, that i've had, gotta, that had her showers like i can't have this I changed my way. Well, my shower schedule changed
2: after COVID started. Oh
1: man! I'm um, the same pajama pants I put on back in March of last year. Never took off. <laughs> well, I was wondering if I should wear pants tonight. You know, I didn't know whether I was going to
2: have to stand up for any reason during the during the recording. Yeah, no, no, yeah, you there's was, uh,
1: yes. <laughs> No, you really don't have to. I do have pants on, on by yeah, the way. No, okay, I was about to throw the Gen Z challenge at you like uh Can you do your po- the, you have to do this podcast for 90 minutes with your balls on fire. Can you do it? Oh my god. Oh you know, we wow. We have young people on this That's... show. They would take they'd be like, "I'll do it right now." How many TikTok views do I get? <laughs> 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 no, no Gen
2: Z, listen. <laughs> TikTok. I'd love to get excited about stuff like TikTok. I really would. I'd love to get excited about that. I feel like there's I'm missing a lot of it all. Cool
1: stuff on TikTok, actually. My fiance got addicted to it. <laughs> but yeah. but mainly, like, looking at zoo animals, yeah. which I love. Like, so, because I was under the impression that it was all like dancing idiots. Um, but it's, uh, no, there's a lot of cool stuff on there, you know, as well. Just you know, I, I, I became,
2: became such a bleeding heart. I can't, I can't even really go to the zoo anymore because I just think about how. I'm depressed. All the animals, yeah, must but there's be. a
1: flip side to that coin, right? Because I understand what you're saying a hundred percent. But there's, a, but if you've got an animal that is not going to survive in the wild or is an endangered species, I'm like, thank God for mm. a zoo, right? For instance, like here in San Francisco, yeah. I love the zoo, and there's like a couple of bears that were rescued when they were cubs because they lost their mother, and that there was some sort of circumstance where they weren't able to like function in the wild, right? And so they brought them here and they'd never mm-hmm. really known anything else. And they grew up here and there's a ball, there's an actual bald Eagle here that had its wings damaged that can't fly. Well, that thing would be fucked in nature. Right. So, yeah. you know, yeah. when it, when there's instances like that, yeah, that's I, agree. Good. I agree with you. I think when they're in, when they're animals that were rescued, right. Or animals that are rescued from cruel situations, like this tiger King scumbag and all that kind of stuff. And they go to, to a zoo and a habitat and they can breed and whatever. Like, and especially endangered species, I think that's great now, if you're just going out and grabbing some wild animals, you know ripping them away from their pack or whatever, and throwing them you know in a cage somewhere i'm not down with that at all i mean i'm i'm definitely not yeah. A, yeah. that kind of person, but I think there's i tend to to hope for, be optimistic about. I think a lot of zoos actually especially in this day and age right it's not like the 1800s or early 1900s where it was just like come behold the spectacle and nothing matters but man you know it's we're much more i think uh sensitive species well they,
2: we may create more habitat for them yeah. within the zoos yeah if we can replicate their habitat to some degree then
1: we're doing a better yeah, job agreed i think they should have a, a, a good amount of space and all that but uh Vic, were you about to say something
0: it looked no, like he was. I, I, I was just laughing. You mentioned Tiger King, and I read an oh, article yeah. about uh, him accepting help from the chick he supposedly tried to
1: Carol Baskins. Get,
0: you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's going to help him get out of jail. Oh, so
1: Jesus Christ! Now going to end up getting married. What a story! Did you? Uh, and then she'll uh, kill wow. him. Did you ever see that? Uh, that was like the biggest documentary, like so ever docu series, in the beginning of the pandemic. Did you watch that, Stephen? I was I was hearing about that, but I never saw it. It's it sucks you in it's pretty addicting and it's it's pretty ridiculous but you can't help but watch it but uh anyway, so this chick carol baskins there was there was this rival of these two you know the kind of people that we don't like that just keep animals in captivity and use them to you know, charge money for people to come see tigers in captivity bullshit and not good. Neither one of these people Mm -hmm. were good people. And the one guy hated this other chick so much that he was plotting her death and now he's in jail. Like, (laughs) that's a thing. (laughs) And uh, so and then this chick, on the other hand, apparently uh, her husband years ago just vanished. Nobody knows what happened. And there's a theory that she killed him and fed him to her tigers. And, uh, but anyway, I saw this absolutely hilarious meme the other day that said something about like, uh, uh, like a uh, the girl posted and said, Why is it that my fu- husband can fart like 59 times in a row and it's okay? But if I fart once, he looks at me like I'm Carol Baskins. I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh man, well, dude, I think we've actually successfully completed a. Pl- now, see, now that we talked about some man stuff, farting and porn, I think we've well-rounded <laughs> pod. You know, uh, South well, Park, crazy. well we're yeah, we're we talked about it yeah. all. A little, a little bit of everything. So, Stephen, yeah, yeah I dude. It. so May 15th. Now, I, I'll be honest, like, there's no way in hell this thing's going to air before May 1st. <laughs> that's where we got a backlog of these uh, technical catastrophes. Oh, that's that why we you, gotta, you I know, see. We got to figure out here. Oh, but yeah. um, May 15th, yeah, totally cool to plug that show. I'm, I'm going to be in Austin, free that night, dude. I'd love to be there, man. I hope. Uh, oh, cool, cool. Are you going to have cool. posting that? Uh, yeah. There, or are you going to be advertising that?
2: Yes, I will. I'll, I'll be well. I can just since I know you're going to be around, I'll uh, message you directly. But I'll be posting it on Nextdoor and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, on the fifteenth, it's going to be Ernie Darawa and uh, Chris yes. Alcaraz on bass and vocals, killer. and uh, Jim Jimmy Soma on guitar. Oh,
1: Hell yeah, dude! That's all- and this is the driveway thing. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that's killer, dude. Yeah, that's so cool.
2: Ernie was interested in coming over. It's like anything you you involve Ernie with is well, gonna he, be a good er, show.
1: Ernie's no fool. He lives south. If you lived in Georgetown, Ernie'd be like, "Yeah, I can't make it. Sorry." <laughs> <laughs> right? No, nah, man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> or he'd need he need a guarantee. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I can't say I would blame him either. You know. But uh, no, that's killer, man. Yeah. That, that sounds yeah. super exciting. So, um, yeah, we'll try to get this out and, and advertise that. I'll definitely definitely looking forward to that. Any anywhere specific people look for you? Just Facebook, Instagram. Uh, maybe one more time, just mention some of the bands you're playing with.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, uh, the Hot Texas Swing Band, uh, 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 God, like Extreme Heat, uh, Curtis Calderon Group in San Antonio. Uh, uh, we're going to do another Tony Harrison performance at the Central Market here in June. Um, uh, that's really nothing else at this point. Just, just whatever we can bring to the driveway
1: awesome man i love it and
2: and, and yeah just been able to bring different musicians keep it interesting trying not to bore the neighbors although most of the neighbors are always just happy that we do anything oh, man, at all that'd
1: be you cool know they're they're happy these- they're so appreciative we're so glad you're yeah, doing yeah. this you know because they just want something different Oh you know, well, it's not like you're a do. death metal band out there practicing in your driveway i mean it's accessible music <laughs> that, you know most people can can dig on oh uh um
2: that, uh, that uh, heavy metal piece, uh, um, I'm forgetting your buddy's name now. Blaine, uh, uh,
1: I was just going to mention. So Blaine. that whole Blaine. thing that you came in and tracked sax on, which was probably two years ago now, this thing has been this long-running on and it's off. It's been track. a while. Obviously, nothing was done in 2020, and we just got back on. Well, I was sure that you had
2: scrapped my tracks and that's why I hadn't heard Dude, from you. Have you, you seen
1: the, you, No, you actually there's a there's a trailer. You, so you probably saw it. It features your sax solo. Yeah. Yes.
2: I'm on the yeah. trailer and I was so proud to be a part of something that you could call heavy metal. I
1: mean, I would you know call that heavy call it? metal? It's a very interesting EP and I'm I'm so excited for this thing to come out. We're actually right now you know, we're in the final mixing stages. We've got a video premiere scheduled uh, for May. And so we're looking at kind of a June release for this for the six songs, which is almost like mm, an yeah. album. mean they're kind of, kind of long songs. Some of them have several, you know, a part A, B, C, D type thing. So it's almost like a, a oh wow, well, almost like okay. as a three so and it, three vinyl. This is the iTunes it's, one. No, right? no, no, this is called a Stasis. So this is a, a project that Blaine, uh. and, uh, you know, had been writing for several years back, and I got involved, and, and then we started. We have just kind of been picking at it and recording it over the years. And Stephen came in and played sax on one of the tunes, and, uh, and it's finally nice. well. It, it was a
2: really interesting, interesting time yeah, signature, and it, it had it. that rougher feel yeah, to I don't it. Know some
1: of the influences, yeah. but
2: I, but I have my oldest brother uh, is heavily into music that that sounds like that. Let's just say. And I was very proud to be able to share
1: that Thanks, with you. Thanks, man. Dude, yeah. I can't wait for this cause... to be out. And, and that whole solo section is, is fantastic. And its I would say it's kind of like, it's got, I would call it a kind of a progressive rock sort of vibe. Like maybe I think okay. some, there's some influence from like, you know, King Crimson and those types of groups, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, mm. but um, yeah, dude, I can't wait for it to be out. And uh, I forgot that that was, yeah. that, that's so cool, man, that you're on there. So I'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. <laughs> all right brother yeah steven vague I all agree. right yes well, we made it through a podcast with no technical difficulties it took us 50 episodes <laughs> but we i enjoyed the heck yeah. out of it cool dude all right man all congratulations right. to all uh, well thanks a bunch and we'll uh, we'll talk to you later on okay don't don't hang up so to speak just so we make sure that everything uploads okay This has been Skunk Manhattan and (laughs) Victor Ramos. I always fuck up our names. Who cares? Episode 51 or whatever the fuck it is. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Big Vic. Big Vic.